Welcome to this week's episode of In The Long Run Podcast. I'm really excited about this week's episode. We've got a special guest, Nigerian sprinter, Elusoji Vasuba, otherwise known as the fastest African ever recorded over 100 meters. In the podcast, I refer to his nickname, which is Flash, and I said I would explain in the podcast why he's called that, uh, and I never actually got round to doing so, and it doesn't take a toy genius to work out that it was a name given to him by his Royal Navy friends, uh, because obviously he is as quick as a Flash. Now, you would think it's not the typical guest for a podcast that's normally talked about endurance running or endurance sports. However, you don't get to be an elite at anything without having the ability to endure the process to get to that level. And Flash's story is certainly one of endurance in that regard. Now, before we get to the episode, I'd just like to ask how you're doing in your training with the hope that we still have some events coming up in autumn. When I speak to most of my running friends, we're pretty pessimistic that there will be events between September and Christmas. And I won't lie, it has affected my motivation a little bit. However, I'm still keeping with the process. I'm still trying to keep up the good habits. And I've started now my schedule for the London Marathon, although I'm not very hopeful that it will happen. But to me, that doesn't matter. I really need a program more than ever at this time where I'm not so much in control of my schedule because of homeschooling and the balance between work and other irregularities because of the Covid crisis. So my message to you would be keep up the schedule, keep up a training block even if you haven't got an event coming up especially during this time. It's this time where the process is really going to help you keep your mental health. If you want some further tips, go back to previous episodes on scheduling, a hierarchy of coaching to make sure you're concentrating on the right things and keep a good balance. And remember, if you need any assistance in developing those habits or developing a running program or you'd like to bounce ideas off, please do not hesitate to get in touch via in the long run podcast at gmail.com. I've had some really good engagement and debates with people so far and I'd like to think I've provided uh, some good advice to help them on the road to successful running, which basically means just being happy with your running. Okay, without further ado, let's hear from Olympian Alu Soji Vashuba on In the Long Run podcast. Okay, welcome to this week's episode of In The Long Run podcast. Uh, I'm extremely excited and grateful actually to have a bit of a superstar on this week's episode. And he'll forgive me if I, if I, if I don't do well pronouncing his name. It's Olu Soji Vashuba, but I am thankfully that I know him as Flash and we'll get to why he's called that in a minute. Welcome Flash to this week's episode. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be down here. So I'm going to give you a brief introduction because every time I've interviewed runners without your pedigree, they've, they've uh, always been full of humility and they've undersold themselves. So I'd just like to, for people who may not know you, I'd like to sort of sum up some of your highlights and maybe you could tell me some more. For me, the thing that stands out is you are the fastest African recorded over 100 metres and that record still stands. And from my research that you are still the 14th fastest ever recorded 100 metre runner and that's ahead of the pedigree such as Frankie Fredericks, Carl Lewis and Linford Christie which I just think is amazing. Fastest man of the continent of 1.3 billion, I think that's a, <laughs> a really, a really big accolade. 
but you've also in 2004 won an Olympic bronze medal for the 4x100 with Nigeria that was in Athens came fourth in the world championships in 2007 and first world door in cha uh, indoor championships over 60 meters in 2008 plus numerous national and continental uh, championship races over the 100 meter discipline that is a pretty impressive CV. Welcome. Thank you very much. So tell me where it all started for you, uh, Flash, in terms of growing up and your journey to getting to being uh, such an elite level. Well, um, as a kid, um, I was very competitive. I love, I love trying to compete in everything and trying to win. And if I don't win, um, I never stopped. I kept going till I actually get to winning that game. And I think um, then it just started when I started playing games, board games with my mom. We play Ludo, chess, and we don't stop playing until I win. I think my mom used to taunt me on that and keep saying, you never want to give up. I'm like, no, I have to win. I think that nature kind of came up in me. And I think at the age of seven, um, I watched Carl Lewis run. Yeah. And I just walked up to my mom and said, I don't understand why those guys are running fast because I believe I was faster than them. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. that was the kind of belief I had as a seven-year-old then. And I never knew you had to train. But with time, I got to that level. And I think I was quite happy. Yeah, I remember as a seven-year-old trying to race cars and thinking <laughs> one day I will beat one down the road, but um, <laughs> uh, it, it never happened. Was your mum an athlete as well? My mum was an athlete, but she never got that far because then um, she she's a Jamaican. Yeah. And um, then I think women went running that much. Their parents were more encouraging to go into school or settle down yeah. home. So I think when my mum noticed I had that talent, she gave me the full support I needed. So when did she move to, did you move to Nigeria or did you? Yes, my mom moved into Nigeria, I think in um, 1984, about then. She came to Nigeria with my dad then, because my dad travelled around the world. Yeah. And I grew up all my life in Nigeria. All your life in Nigeria? Yeah. Was it always sprinting that you were going to go for or did anything else? Uh... Well, um, when I was in school, I was quite, I would like to say I was quite multi-talented because I was the captain of the volleyball team. Um, I, kept, I was playing football. I did literally all sports, basketball, table tennis. I did all. And running, I think I did. was quite good in the long jump. I was one of the long jump, the high jump. But one of my weak points was the long distance running. And yeah. I think after I ran 1,500 meters, I think I came fifth to sixth. I never ran there again. <laughs> you sound like one of those people who I refer to as gits. You sound like you were good at everything. <laughs> yes. Fortunately and unfortunately, I was because of the fact is um, I had this thing that I could pick up games quickly. Like I started playing squash. Um, last year and the person that taught me was quite good and I think I was able to beat him within the span of two months really? so I do pick up games really fast quite, I was quite lucky with that but not water sports anything in water sports count me out of it <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, I got you. so well, what age then did you start saying right this is this is a thing for me I, I, I can I, I can cut it with the big boys and perhaps other things can turn off in terms of normally finding a job finding a living um, I think for me, that was the age of 14 or 15 because um, I was just about in sec finishing my secondary school then because I was um, I was quite good at school as well. So that's what I think it was quite hard. The principal was like, oh, most, most people, when you're not good in sports, you're not really good with your education. But that was oh, um, opposite for me. I was quite good in both of them and actually finished with a scholarship at that age. And when I went to the stadium, I think that was the first time I saw someone faster than me. Yeah. And um, I remembered... When I went there, um, as a 14-year-old, running with the senior team, um, I came second in the 100 metres and fourth in the 200 metres, and I broke down crying. 
And I think the coaches were surprised that why am I crying that I've done actually with the senior team. Yeah. And those were guys that were like 25, 26 year old running. And I told them, no, I believe, I've always believed I was the fastest man in the world at that age. Yeah. So to see somebody beat me then was, <laughs> for me, was scary. And I was like, no, I couldn't believe that was happening. And the next question I asked that day was, how come they were faster than me? And they told me, oh, it was just because they've been training for years. And then that's when I decided, all right, then that's, it's gonna, that's just going to be my focus. I'm just going to train and get there, nothing else again. Well, it's an interesting point you bring up there because there is a, there is a thought in the coaching world that if a, uh, if a person has, and I'm not saying you've had it easy up to that point, but if you are winning up to that point, uh, it can be difficult when, when they do lose or they get into some difficulty and it, it could turn them off. But for you, you just seen it as, right, they've had training uh, and you, you you knew you could get better. Did you know you could get as good as people internationally? Well, um, to put it on there, and it's, I think they were quite right in that story because um, in the breakdown, when I, they told me about training, I started training, and I think I went for my first state competition in 1998, and um, as a young kid then, with no shoes or nothing, I got into the finals. Uh, <laughs> when I saw how big the guys were in the finals, I started to do press-ups, a minute before the 100 meters taken, <laughs> that's an experience. But that was my story. I yeah. tried to do some press-ups to get how big, see how big they were, to just because I was like really skinny then. Yeah. And I think um, I led as normal because I was always a faster starter as a kid. Yeah. I think that was one of my natural bond talent I had. And I think after 40 meters, I gave up. I was like, oh no, I don't think this is for me. And um, went back home after the trials and told my mom I wasn't doing sports anymore. That was the end. Right. And my mom, the good thing, they didn't pressure me. They were like, all right then. So I started thinking about getting to the university. And three months later, to be precise, the 1st of January, two, 1999, I woke up and told my mom, I think I can do it now. And within three months, I'd broken two state records. Wow. <laughs> and stuff. So I did had a, I still had a point in my career where yeah. I stopped and said I wasn't doing that. And within three months, I woke up and I was like, all right, I'm going to give it all my all in training. And I think I remember waking up at home in my little estate I was staying. I, marked, I walked around, marked up the old, because I was quite lucky. My estate had a, a big round. It was built in a, such a way that the houses were like a roundabout format. Yeah. So I, could, I marked out about 380 meters around uh, my estate then. And I used to get about 5 a.m. at that age just to train <laughs> before uh, going to the stadium to train. Yeah. Wow, that is dedication. So you, mm. you're saying you did have that initial thought of a yeah, three that, months? Yeah, that three months, that it wasn't going to be for me because I saw people were faster. I knew it was training, but I didn't understand that you had to put in more. But when I did come back, I think my, my belief was if they were training once a day, I'll train two a day. And when I noticed people were training twice a day, I decided to train three times a day. Yeah. And that was the kind of dedication I put in into my training to get me to that level. Here's where I want to take the mickey out of you, though, Flash, because... Um, I've talked to you about this before when I go up on the track and um, as an endurance runner, my intervals will be smallest 300 metres and um, up to, you know, 2K, so to speak. And every time I look at the sprinters, like, they look like they're having a whale of a time because they, they do about 10 yard dashes <laughs> and have about what looks like about 10 minute break. <laughs> well, but tell um, me about the training of a, of a sprinter. I think um, I like to me. This is my own personal thought. I like to think sprinters are like the babies of 
be of the athletics world. They love to be pampered. They don't. They don't like so much stress. <laughs> yeah. When you start, if we, as a sprinter, you go to the track and your coach says you have three hundred meters, you start panicking. You see, it looks like your coach <laughs> wants to drag you back, and that's just three hundred meters with a lot of rest in between. But um, one thing we got to realize is the amount of sprinters are people that you can just like a cheetah or a tiger. Yeah, they are calm and ready to pounce in that um, in a matter of seconds. But once they pounce, that's it. They've got to rest a lot. Yeah. And I think that's it. But when you look, uh, I've not really done a study, but I believe sprinters do burn a lot of energy. Yeah. And that's why when we eat, we eat a lot of food as well to be able to um, compensate for the amount of energy that we burn. And that's the major difference. But when we go to the track and we see, like, I think I was speaking with one of the long distance runners in my, uh, when I went to one of my competitions in Italy then, and he was at the fact that, oh, my own training session is his warm up. I was like, "Well, good luck to you. I'm <laughs> yeah. not doing your warm up with you." <laughs> yeah, I mean that's got to be a skill within itself, isn't it? In terms of getting from nothing to max power, like in under a well, well under a second. That that's that sounds like something that you'd have to work on 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 itself. Never mind the the actual technique of running. Yes, um, that's why um, I like to believe there are almost two different classes of sprinters in a sense that those that can go from zero to sixty meters really fast. But his advantage with that is the faster they get there, the slower they start decelerating faster. Right. Unlike those that can build up, build up, then get to that forty fifty and start picking up and get into that max speed and hold it for longer. And those are the two classes of sprinters. I kind of fall into the fact, um, I kind of fall into the class of people that can accelerate from 20 to 0 to 60 really fast. My PB in 60 meters is still 6.0, um, 6.01 hand timing. Wow. Yeah. And I could do that constantly with my 60 meters. But as I said, the reason why those kind of people are more dangerous is the day they get the balance, the last 40 will fall into place. Unlike people that always wait to catch up from yeah. 60 meter to um, all their speed up. So those are the things with sprinters. They've got that class that you've got to, um, those that will accelerate faster and those that can hold their maximum speed. Yeah. It's fascinating because I would just say it's something that lasts 10 seconds. Where's the tactics? Where's the endurance? <laughs> Where's the you know different styles? Mm. But I know for a fact, and uh, you've explained it there, that when you get down to it, it's there will be many multi-faceted yes. sort of things what's it like then when if you look at your time 9.85 seconds i don't think most people can distinguish the difference between that and the world record now in the difference in time do you know it within the race do you know oh god that's a couple of tenths of seconds down not really though because um i was telling people that it's there's a reason why you've got a personal best a personal best is at that point you've given all you've got and that's literally nothing else left again. So for somebody like Boulder that's able to break that world record at that point, he's giving in all his best at that time, but the both bests are not the same. They're different. So yeah. no matter how hard you will try, you will never go more than your personal best, except you're breaking your personal best to get a new personal best again. But at some point in your life, you will get to a personal best that you can't go again. And I think that's level. So I know that when I got to that level, I was open. I could go more than that and kept trying. But no matter what, it just happened that no, that was just my personal best. And it's going to be like that forever. But is it, is it the case of, you know, if you if you don't strike the ground once in the correct manner, that, that mucks everything up? Do you know this in the race? Are you conscious that every foot strike and arm drive, would you know if there was one error that you couldn't recover from it? What's it like mentally throughout that 10 seconds? Unfortunately, in the 100 meters, 10 seconds is it's just like a blink of a eye for us when we're running. People may stand back and say, oh, within that 10 seconds, they're able to see a lot. But a sprinter, when you're in that level, 
when you're running a 10, 5, 10, 6, you can see a lot of corrections. But when you start eating that 9, your coach is the only one that can actually see that uh, mistakes you make. Yeah. And when you watch your race, you're like, oh, I wish I didn't do that, but you've done it already. Or you're yeah. going to try and correct it yeah. again, but it doesn't mean you're going to get to that time. So it's really hard. When you're in that race, um, after I watched that 9, my 9.85 seconds, I saw a little things I could have done, just could have made it a bit better. But as I said, it's a PB. You, you may break it, you may never reach it again, yeah. and that's just it. What was it like when you got the time, was it? Well, um, before that, I think a day before that, I think I was in the worst condition ever. I told my coach, I was in Doha then, it was too hot. And I was like, I don't understand what's wrong with me. It was all weird. My warm-up, I got to the track that day as well. I was in a warm-up and I almost broke down crying to my coach on that day. I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. And that's what I said to him in my own words. I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't lose of PBs. Um, in the 70 meters, 80 meters, and the 150s before I came. So I knew I was in a, the greatest shape of my life. Mm. And my coach was like, oh, don't worry. Um, we'll change my warm-up, change my warm-up a little bit for me. And I think before I normally go to run my race then, I used to run a 60 meters. But I'll run 30 meter fast and 30 meter relaxed. And that's it. So my coach will always time it. Yeah. And when I did that, it caught me at 6.1, was it 6.15? Right. And the next yeah. comment was almost, his battery and his watch must have died. <laughs> that was his comment. And I went to the heat and I jogged in 9.92 then. And I was like, ooh, then I knew then that I had, still had more in me yeah. to give my best. And I went into that race giving all I had. For marathon runners, we have the dreaded taper. So two weeks before the race where we've come down volume and intensity. Mm. And I haven't met anyone, another fellow marathon runner yet that says uh, they felt great in those two weeks. It's almost like mental demons come into place. Uh, physically the body's repairing and you can sense these aches and pains coming in you don't know whether they're an injury is that is that an equivalent for a sprinter Do yes you have a for a sprinter it's uh, i think two weeks or so before the games you'll start noticing oh there's a pain in your leg where's that come from yeah or yeah well we do we, no, we feel it a lot and anytime we don't feel it before a competition we kind of know oh we're not doing well in that competition so we're just going to use it as a training um thing and that's why within those two weeks most sprinters I know, including myself, we try and take the ultimate care because we are, you are in such a zone, especially for a game. It's such in a zone that you want to be able to give your best at a particular time but not burn out too early. Yeah. So you're, you're so preoccupied, any little thing, you can get a strain. And that's where the coach comes in, your physique comes in, try and put your mind at rest. Yeah, it's fascinating. Right, what I want to get into now is um, how you were operating as an elite athlete uh, with the Nigerian Athletics Federation. Because yeah. I've read a lot about that it may not have been as a... An, it's not an easy journey for any elite athlete. Mm. You all are amazing and done some uh, arduous work and training. But it was particularly difficult for you, would you say, compared to maybe in European countries or North American yeah, countries? Yeah, I think um, that's the hard part because most other countries don't understand what the Africans go through. Um, say in Nigeria... We, as an athlete coming up, you really don't get much sponsors. You don't get much support. And if you, if you do sign a shoe contract, you don't get paid as much. And this is during my time. I don't know about now. But you don't get paid as much as your counterpart from Europe mm. or from America. And most of the time, when you talk to the managers or you speak to the shoe companies there, they will say, oh, well, their products can't really sell in Africa because no one is going to go, no one is going to go back to Africa and bear, buy a pair of shoes for like 40 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the low-grade one. No one. So you kind of understand where the shoe companies are coming from. But at the same time, we kind of understand that, all right, we tend to now try and depend more on our government to try and assist us then. But unfortunately for us, most of us don't get that. 
um, we go to games. Most times we go to games. We end up before, while our counterparts are resting, we are fighting for our allowances. Or you start hearing them, oh, we're going to pay you part of it now. We're not going to pay you then. We'll pay you then. So I think that kind of knocks a little bit of confidence from you because you know you're going to the games and all you're going there to do, first of all, is to fight for your allowance. Are you getting complete allowance? Yeah. Or are you getting your ticket money back? You Like for me, I think 2007 when I came fourth in the world, I flew home from Germany to Nigeria for my national trials. And normally when you qualify, you get paid your ticket money for coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I never got paid that. And I think after three months of asking, they kept telling me, oh, we'll, we'll bring it to the games. We'll bring it to the games. And I think in Osaka, 2007, I asked, oh, where's my ticket money? I've paid. This is my own personal money. I've come. None of you will spend your own money yeah. to do anything. But you expect us for the foreign athletes to spend our own money to come back. So those are the kind of little things that we as Africans tend to see. And that's why I kind of feel really sad when the international body tries to bring in laws, oh, you can nationalize in other countries to compete for them because many of them don't really know what we are going through as an African athlete. Are you on about when someone transfers to another country? Yes. Yeah. So because that's, I'm just trying to put that into perspective that yeah. um, the international body doesn't see that. They think, oh, this artist is just doing it for more because, oh, it's money and things, not because it's, it's, Athletics is a business. It's all about the money you're going to make. But when you're having that much problem with your federations, in yeah. the sense that, you know, you go to games, they'll go with 50 athletes, they will go with maybe, they may go with 50 athletes, for example, go with 10 coaches, then they go with people from the ministry, about 200 or 300 staffs who are coming to shop. And the next thing they're telling you, they're not paying you allowance. You've got yeah. no money to go back with. It's, it's really sad. And those are the kind of things we tend to fight more and causes more problems for us. And at, at some point, uh, when we go to games, I think there was a point in the games, you all said, we are not going to run except we get paid. And that was in turn three Paris. We refused to run because we knew it was money we weren't getting. Yeah. And people look at it, oh, it should all be for the games. Yes, for the games. Uh, well, it's, no. you've, got, you've got to spend money on your training. You've got to spend money on your vitamins. You've got to spend money on your coaches. Those are things. Like we, we come from Nigeria. Like I come from Nigeria now. My house rent in a year that time might have been like 500 pounds a year. And I've got to come to Europe and pay something similar a month. Yeah. <laughs> Where am I going to get that from? I've yeah. got to compete. So those are things that the international body has to look into. The fact that many of these African athletes are not getting the support they're meant to from their country. And in the long run, we want to want to try and change nationality for a better, for greener pastures, if I could say that. Yeah. And other sports do it. And the Olympics, is, there's something about it that just... I know we've got this ideal about it should be amateur. Well, there is an old-fashioned ideal that it should be amateur athletics, do it for the love of the sport. Mm. But you've mentioned all the practicalities there. But what get, what gets me is the amount of money the Olympics make. Mm. And I think, I can't remember where I read it, but once you add up all the athletes, take away the Mo Farahs, Paula Radcliffe's, or famous Americans, the athletes along, among the whole Olympics are one of the worst paid out of the whole sort of event Yes, and I think it's the business because um, it's all the politics of the game. I think that's what's dragging especially athletics down for us because you've said um, Olympics is one of the biggest games for us, but the amount of money an athlete made from there is so small compared to when tennis goes and plays all other games and they make that amount of money. I think that's one of the killing factors of athletics and they've been this has been going on for so long and that is why um, in 2009 um, I realized that if I kept doing sports this way, the prize money we're getting was getting smaller by the day by the effort for the efforts that they want you to put in yeah and that's why i decided to make a u-turn in my own career uh, others still had to stay because they didn't really have choice 
yeah. but I had the choice and I decided to bow down at the age because I realized I'd covered a lot. So I believe once they can move us from the amateur level, I think athletics will get back to the glory days that it was once. Because if you take the Williams sisters' father, if you take Tiger Woods' father as two mm. examples, I think they had in mind they wanted their kids to do a sport that would socially mobilize them you know get yeah. them get them their riches yeah and you know it's a, a very you know sport sport no yeah. matter what it is uh, and it could be they didn't choose athletics because of yeah because of that reason and that is the problem we have back in in africa um because of the fact is athletics was slightly almost the easiest way we could get the recognition that we so deserve in a sense that um in other sports there was so much corruption there like sometimes if you didn't have something called a godfather, which is somebody that will get you, can protect you there, but you've got to pay him loads of money to be able to get them to other sports like football, which is the major um, money-making yeah. business in sports, or tennis, you don't go anywhere. So athletics was a kind of a smaller way for us to be able to get out of that bound, that bond we're suffering back home yeah. and things like that. So I said, until they remove that amateur level from athletics, we will just keep going down the drains of you see loads of people complaining athletics there's nothing in athletics that much did you ever consider switching nationalities well it came to me a lot of time um i had the opportunity a lot of time but then on i was young um i was like oh no it's um i believe there will be change right and unfortunately there was no change and i decided to leave as earlier so i believed if i had not if i had left maybe if i'd dumped nigeria then i may still have been running by now yeah, but a long run, I was, I was still happy because I com I was able to achieve a lot compared to other people. I was interested in I only caught one article when I was doing some research on you about your relationship with your coach, uh, and he was in an interview. I think it was for a Nigerian uh, press. Uh, I can't remember the name of the paper, but he seemed a bit inexperienced, or he admitted himself that he was inexperienced in um, nurturing athletes. And you were his first elite level, is that correct? Yes, I think um, the way we met was. Um, Funny, if I could put it that way, because um, I when I started my career, um, the missing link in my career was actually a coach called Coach Nedu who actually called me into sports, but he never trained me then. He just called me, gave me a bit of tips, and that was the end of it. And then um, I went online and did more research to train myself. So actually, I could say I literally trained myself to run a 10.15. That was literally my really? own. Yeah, I studied all the studies and everything, got ideas from because I was... I, I, you know, as much as I love to walk, I love to combine ideas. And my main yeah. power was, why do you have to do that? Yeah. What's the benefit? And when I was able to combine both of them, I developed a program for myself that I used and brought myself up. The first four months I did that, it broke, I broke my time down to 10-4, but strained my muscle <laughs> yeah. because I wasn't getting the right knowledge. Then I went back, did more research on it as well again, and I was able to get myself to Levani 10-1-5 in the Afro-Asian wow. Games. And then I was like, I think I've gotten myself to a level where I know I'm going to need somebody to be able to take me up to the, a bit further. I and think even if you know it all, you just need that second stakeholder. Yes, you always do. To step outside of your consciousness. And, you and know, do that, yeah. yeah. So I think I went into the coaches forum in the IEF when it was called that then. Yeah. And I applied, oh, um, I'm looking for a coach. Is anybody willing to coach me? I said that. And um, he came in and was like, oh, he's a statistician. So was it was Pierre Jean, Jean Fazel? Yeah. yeah, he was a statistician, and w when I spoke to a lot of them, he was the only one I really liked because he was able to like tell me my stride lengths of what I'd done in all competition. He did that for free as well. He told me my stride lengths for my competitions. He told me, all right, this is the um, amount of steps I've taken. If we can work on my stride lengths, we just and he started trying 
to do that. And before you notice, my times were cutting down. It came down to 10-0. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, would you like to walk with me? And we both started walking together. And I think the good thing is he went, um, he traveled out, did more research on himself as well. And both of us combining. And that's how we got a 9.85. Oh, it sounds like a good relationship. And um, he, came, he, he was very sympathetic to the struggles you had to go through in terms of you know, if you had to go to a competition, you had to go to your embassy, doing this all Ooh. on yourself. And he said something, uh, he was holding back. He said, I won't tell you everything we did to get to where we were. Uh, it sounds like you, you you two had to be creative. Are you willing to share more than what he well, was? Well, I can article? say a bit about it in the sense <laughs> that um, when I was in Nigeria, there were times I could not get access to facilities to train. Um, so I had to use the main road, I had to use fields, stuff, yeah. and I was on a little level at that time. So he had to always change my program towards that. So everything, bearing in mind, he was um, he was based in France, yeah. and I was uh, my my build up was always in Nigeria. So you always had to always had to tell him, all right, coach, I can't get access to a stadium today because I'm having one party. Yeah. or one program at the stadium, so I've got no access today, but I've got to train. So he had to change my program for that day. I was able to change a lot compared to that. Then, uh, bearing in mind, um, I didn't like physiotherapy as well, and massaging as well. I was not a big fan of that. So, But he had to come and understand my muscles, because when the physios used to touch my muscles as well, they were way too hard yeah. <laughs> for what they were. So he had to like, and he knew I didn't like it at all. So he had to modify that for me as well again. Uh, when he got to competitions, it was time to go to, um, I need to travel. Like I said, I need to travel to a country now. Oh, what visa do you have? You have to go back to Nigeria to get a visa. I mean, you were already, you have to fly all the way down to Nigeria to get a visa. And that's a nightmare trying to get a visa back in Nigeria. It's something totally different. It's yeah. not like, yeah, you can walk up and go to the embassy. No, in Nigeria, you may have to book four months in advance. By the time you get to the gate, you see so many people yeah. queuing up, they look at you and it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But, those are the kind of things he had to do to be able to get me in shape. And at times, when I don't have facilities, sometimes there might be days, a week, there's, I've got nothing to do. He's got, he had to think, all right, then let's do some things in the house. We'll start doing some programs. And, he had to, and I think that really helped me and motivated me to get to where I, I got to. It's amazing. Flash, do you ever think, for God's sake, could I not be with a federation that could have supported me more and therefore I could have and what could have been without well, those distractions? Yes. Um... If at that now, if I think about it and said, if I'd done what most of my other top guys like Francis Obikwere had done, I believe I might have gotten closer to a world record, if not a world record, because my coach really believed I was talented and I had that fit and I was willing to work as hard as well. Um, but when I was competing then, mine was, you know what, um, I'm with this situation, I'm good in working with whatever situation I've got, I'll give in all my best, and if anything ever comes out of it, fine, if nothing, mm -hmm. um, I know I've done my best, and that was the level, um, my belief at that particular time. Uh, looking back at it is, I can't really change time. No, I've no, done most of what most Africans have, um, as a sprinter has never done. I've been, a, been the um, first African to win the 60 meter world indoor. Till date, no African has won that. Um, I ruled Africa for three times in the African Championship. No one has won it three times in a row for every two years. Yeah. So I can say I've achieved a lot you have. with the little I have not, uh, with the little I didn't have, if I could say that, because yeah. I got no support. 
there were a few times um, some state governors, like um, Ekiti State Governor, gave me some money, which was like ten thousand US dollars to use for training. And back home, their people were like, "Wow, that's a lot of money!" That was like ten thousand dollars. That's not going to last a professional. Didn't they months. say it was ten million as well? Uh, yeah, at, at one point, point, I think at one point someone came and, and said it was fifteen million, and I had to go back and correct it. I was like, "That was not even close <laughs> yeah. to that. that." and that was in Naiva as well. So if I look, he said that ten million at that time was just one point five million of my own currency. Yeah. It wasn't up to 10 million at that point. So people don't understand that. I always thought, oh, the country gave me so much. Why? I was like, no, they did not. As in, compared to what my other um, counterparts were getting in terms of shoe contracts, the support from their own countries and things. I think at one time when I won the world indoor, I got back, I was like, yes, I think, no, the first time it started is when I got the Commonwealth silver medal in Melbourne, 2006, I was like, oh, I've I done didn't it. mention that at the start, did I? <laughs> no, Sorry, I guys, I forgot a significant <laughs> medal there and he didn't even pick me up. I told you these runners are modest. Um, when so, I, yeah, Commonwealth silver when medal. When I won the Commonwealth silver medal, I was like, whoa, I was very happy then. That was in 2006. I was 22 then. I was like, wow, I think uh, my country will recognize me for that. Go back home, nothing. All right. I think that same year, I broke the African record. I was like, surely something should, at least the government should realize I'm doing my best now. There's nothing. And I think um, 2008, when I won the World Indoor, I was like, this has to be it because no one has ever won this now. So I can actually lay claim to it. And I'm, saying, yeah. I'm the first man, go back home. My fans and everybody were waiting for me. Still nothing. I think at one point I heard, um, oh, the House of Senate back home, were like, oh, let's name a street about um, on his name because he has done that. That was the end of it. Nothing else again. Nothing to even <laughs> say he's ever done that. Just my fans were ever praising me. And many of them were like, why haven't you just left this country? Why are you still staying? I was like, you know what? I've given all my sweat for this now. I might as well just see it through. And I think um, I sacrificed. I think what really put me off was after I won the World Indoor, I was like, I was going to try and go for an individual Olympic medal yeah. and cancel loads of my commission, which means I lost a lot of money then. Uh, because I put all my effort, I was going to give it to the Olympics. And if I can get an Olymp um, individual medal, then I'll, I will believe that will be me done finally. Then trained very hard. And what most people didn't know was two weeks, which is always my taper time before the games, two weeks before that, I'd broken all my PBs, which means I was actually faster than when I broke the African record. Jeez. So I was in the, in the shape. I knew I was going to run something really fantastic then. Then a day before the 100 meters, the team came over. Oh, we need to train the relays, and I love supporting my team if I could. But my coach was like, um, Olu, you need to be resting now because it's the day before the 100 meter. Like, coach, I still have a little bit in me. Let me go help the team out and strain my ankle a day before the 100 meters. And that was me out. And I think I just lost interest in that after. I just lost the will after yeah. that. And that was the end. <laughs> I mentioned it at the start, with it only being 10 seconds, I can think as a marathoner, it's dangerous to think it's all or nothing. 10 seconds yep. or four years to wait for another uh, Olympics, Olympics to come did. back around. It's yeah. like all or nothing on a scale that uh, yeah. I just don't recognize. No, it's, 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 it's dangerous, but at some point is I realized I'd, I'd gone to that stage in my life and I was quite young then. Um, when was that? I was still an eight. I was just 24 then. I was just, I was just like, you know what? At 24, I'd achieved, I'd achieved so much already in turn eight. So I was like, you know what? I think it's time for me to give in everything now. And then maybe try and start again if I wanted to. Yeah. But after I got that injury, and I think I just lost it then. And I just lost all zeal to train. My coach tried, I was like, nah, you know what? I'm done. I just want to stop. <laughs> and do you know what we're doing here is we're focusing on the negative. You traveled the world. You went to all the, I mean, when I was reading your history, you went to all these cities. That must have been a, a buzzing experience. You achieved those medals, which are bloody fantastic. <laughs> and I think this is a problem with athletics. 
if you're ninth fastest in the world, you don't make the final, but you are still an amazing athlete. You, you've trained so hard and you've done so well. If you equate that to football, you can be in the in the 15th worst team in a country and still be a famous footballer yep. and you know yep. still be mobbed by fans out yep. on the street. And yet we look at someone who come ninth in the Olympics and we might say, if we're British, we'll say, oh, <laughs> uh, this British sprinter didn't make the final. He's a bit disappointing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's, it, but if people come far to the game, they look at you as being disappointing as well. Yeah, so you can imagine so sometimes some countries even look, oh, he won only just the bronze. <laughs> Ted yeah. in the walls that is something but, yeah. but it's, I think it's the um, mentality we've got with athletics and it has to always be the gold and I think um, what kind of killed athletics a bit more is when decided, when Bolt came in it did a lot for the sports but at the same time he also killed the sports in the sense that everybody was now like oh everybody has to be like Bolt Bolt is just one of the greatest athletes we've all had yeah. all of us competing there we were at one point we were faster than Bolt so now, so now say he's come out and done that great thing. No one's going to dent his achievement. He's done the greatest. But at the same time, he said that pillar so high. So when you go into competitions now, if you're not running a nine constantly, no one wants to even invite you to the race. And like, how many people can run nine in the world now? Yeah. Not a lot of people. And you've got to save it for the best times. And what if people notice with both, both doesn't run so much competitions. Yeah. <laughs> so he wants a few, then goes to the thing. So when uh, the other athletes want to make some money, once I go into commissions, they start wanting to pay you on the fact of how many nines have you run in that year or that season. So it kind of helped the sport, but killed it at the same time. It's uh, interesting point of view. It is interesting, and it, it probably goes back to the point you made about um, the, the support from the nation. If you look mm. at Mo Farah in the marathon, now Mo Farah won lots of medals in in the five and ten k, mm. uh, and he's very accomplished there. But they're almost putting him on the same podium in the press conferences before London Marathon with yeah. Kipchoge. <laughs> now, in my mind, I was thinking they, sh like, they both deserve a press conference. Yeah. But Kipchoge is almost like the bolt of marathons, and you know, Farah wasn't up there. But they bring to the sport some attention, and I suppose is that a good or a bad thing? I don't know. Well, um, it's good because Farah to me, Farah at that level, it's good. It might not be up to his level at that time, but yeah. he's good. But I think the mistake people tend to happen is when they bring a young star coming up and putting them in, into that same press conference. Yeah. And they now make them believe, oh, I'm as great as those people when they've not gotten half of that. And when they go and compete and they realize, oh, I can't even beat them the first time. I can't beat them the second time. They end to quit. I think that's what one. I think that's one of my nuns with the press in the country because of the fact is they tend to always want to bring the British athletes up to the level of the world class when they're not there yet. Yeah. And I think it's as a negative effect in the longer run. Right. I mean, how is British sprinting at the moment? Are you up on it? Are we, well, are we doing um, well? Have we got a... Well, relays, um, I think you guys have got the... The British have got the key for the relays at the moment because they work hard on the relays and they know, yes, they combine the four teams together. Um, individually, it's still a long way to go because the Americans and the Jamaicans are still controlling the sprints and it's really hard. It's once in a while they may break in and but having that consistency. But I think the major problem they have is um, the amount of meets. They have to go into Europe to run meets. They want to try and run meets here. You've got to pay to run into competitions, mm. which I don't think is right in the long run because most of these other meets outside tend to pay you to run. Yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? And stuff, but down here, you want to go to a smaller one, you've got to pay to run. And um, I think... Uh, the your, uh, the national sport lottery is doing a lot for them, but I think they put too much, how can I say, too much constraints in them in the sense that they want them to be at a certain level before they can reach that 
um, get that sponsorship deal, which I don't think is 100% right because they need that continuous support. It may take years, but yeah. they need that continuous support to be able to get there. But when you guys say, oh, they don't want this, you're going to remove them from that, that just kills your talent. Yeah, and it, there was it's the same logic in the British Olympics. If we didn't win medals, they'll they'll cut the funding for the sport, yeah. which will mean you'll never get a medal. For that sport again. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think know? that's I think that's one that's a wrong way to do it. In my own views, it's not the right way to do it. I agree. If you believe that you've got a talent, support him till it gets to his best, and he says, "All right, I can do it anymore again." That's yeah. the way I believe it should be, anyway. So anyway, who says dreams don't come true because you decided, well, you, I wouldn't say give up a career in athletics, but the, the elite level and you're now in the Royal Navy. Tell us about how you came across, came to that decision to to join the Royal Navy. Well, um, as a kid, I grew up in the Navy barracks. My dad was civilian in the Navy. So I always, um, my dream has always been to be, um, my dream has always been to go into the Navy. I tried to go into the Navy school there, but my parents were like, no, you've got to go back to school and finish all that. So I did all that. Then I found my talent. So uh, I think, to be precise, I was in Portugal in 2009, and some friends of mine who were, who were 400 meter runners and went to the Olympics as well, but didn't go that far, but got a bronze medal as well. Yeah. Um, um, went to the army, and they came there, and I was like, oh, well, we're in the army. I was like, wow, is that so? How come? Yeah. I was like, oh, they have always wanted to be there. They were like, cool, come join the army if you wanted to. And I was like, oh, then I asked about the Navy. Bearing in mind, I could even swim then. <laughs> and I asked about the Navy, and I was like, oh. I said, if I ever thought about it, um, I would rather join the Navy. And I think when that, I think that idea is already lodged at the back of my head. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, if you join the Navy, yeah, you'll get a British citizenship. Your kids will be British. I was like, oh, okay, that's me. Now I started thinking about my kids because I was like, I retire, I'll go back home. I've invested back home a little bit, but uh, my kids will have to go through what I've gone through. And I think that just hit me, and I was like, you know what? I think 2009, I was like, no, 2010 to be precise. Um, I was like, no, um, my wife then, um, when married then, uh, was like, oh, we're going to get kids soon. What do you want to do? I was like, you know what? If my kids are going to be talented, not going to run for Nigeria. Not too interested in that anymore. I've seen what has happened. I've tried to make a positive change. Nothing has happened. It's always going to be the same. Um, I'd rather give them a better future. And I think the Navy was the easiest way for me to give my kids that future. And that's why I did that. Mm. And I just applied to join the Navy. Bearing in mind, now to me, I have to do the 1.5 mile. I was like, okay. So <laughs> that's going to be a stopping article. But at that time, uh, my kids haven't been born then. But when I was doing the trials, I had them in the back of my mind. I'm doing this for my kids. I'm doing this for my kids. So you were really scared of the 1.5 mile? Properly really? scared. Really <laughs> scared. I'm not going to lie. When I tried it first time, I was like, oh, I was going to die. But funny enough, it's, I actually came in through the Royal Marines. <laughs> So, but yeah, I did hear this. Yeah, yeah. I uh, when I came, uh, when I got to the AFCO, they were like, Oh, there was no slots, nice, a four year wait. I was like, oh, That four years, I would like to go back into athletics, and I may lose the interest to join that now. But, um, I think I really want to start getting my kids the future that um, I want them to have. And I was like, What's the next thing? They were like, Oh, the Royal Marines, bearing in mind, I'm not head of the Royal Marines there, yeah. or the army. I was like, No, I was like, Royal Marines, are they part of the navy? And the answer was yes. So, my own thinking then was. Do the Royal Marine training and apply to join into the Navy, yeah. which I think when I started training for that, I found out really hard, but I was like, not going to give up because uh, I had that mind. I was like, I was doing it for my kids and no matter what, I'm going to do it past that <laughs> exam, no matter how hard it is. But so just to put that in context for anyone who doesn't know the difference between Royal Navy and Royal Marine training, Royal Navy training would be difficult if you come from a background where you weren't used to getting up early, doing some exercise, having uh, strict routines. It would be difficult, but doable. 
Uh, Royal Marine training is 32 weeks and there's no doubt that it is arduous. It is risky in terms of injury. It puts a lot of pressure and stress on to you in terms of sleep deprivation and other challenges. There is a stark difference. So um, I think you put two and two together there and came up with about seven. Oh, yeah, that's what literally happened there. Because when I did PMRC, geez, at one point I thought I was going to die because it was just doing the endurance. Because the last part I was like, but I was, all I had in my mind was I'm doing this for my kids. I'm doing this for yeah. my kids. And that kept me all true. So when they told me I had passed, I was the most happiest man. But I was like, I don't think I'll ever be doing a PMRC again. Till I came into the first two weeks and the notebook was really hard. And I was thinking, how the hell am I going to finish that? And luckily, the major major who then who was the um, major in the camp then was like, oh, we you were talents. What are you doing now? He was like, I want to join the navy. Oh, we can help you get into the navy. Like that's what I wanted to do in the first place. So yeah. I'll take it. And they gave me that option. Thank um, thankfully for that, and I was able to transfer back into the so, navy. So yeah, good good for Tinder. Are you enjoying it? Enjoying oh yeah, massively. Life? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and your logistician is that right? Logistician, yeah. In the yeah. Navy. And uh, submariner. Yep, just transferred to submarines. Last two years. So no long distance running down there? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the future for you, Flash, in terms of your athletics career? Now? Um, I've been... A lot of people have been saying that well, they want to see me back because I'm sometimes... Like, I went back home last... I went back home this year for my sister's wedding and I still went to the track and I did some stats with the guys and they were with Spikes and our trainers. Bearing in mind, I've not still trained for about three to four years and I was still leading them for 30 meters for my really? trainers <laughs> and stuff. So I know I still have it in me. Um, I'm going to try and put my mind back now to try and compete in the Masters. Yeah. But, um, Is that I'm, for England? Are you, for are England, you a UK oh, citizen Yeah, now? I'm a UK citizen, yeah. 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 So more for England. Um, but as I said, it's trying to get back to put in that shoes to love the sports that much again. Because when you were doing it, when I was doing it then, I was doing it for money. So I had a reason to want to do it. Now is I want to try and do it for the love of the sport. They're yeah. two different things. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? The mindset that this is going to be your livelihood and the mindset you're going to do it for fun are two different ways to train. And trying for me, trying to find that mindset now to do it just for the love of fun of it is a bit hard, but I believe I will get there. I suppose you bring in, bring into sharp context. If so, if money's not a worry and you're trying to be an elite athlete, that gives you all that bandwidth to focus on your running, doesn't yep, it? Yeah, it does. And um, yeah, so I can't imagine trying to make ends meet whilst trying to be elite as well. That yeah. is, I did read in the there was an article on the uh, on the Gov website actually because we celebrated the fact that you were joining the Royal <laughs> Navy. Uh, we've got a champion on our hands. Uh, maybe the Royal Navy Athletics Association was rubbing <laughs> their hands together and you were interviewed and you mentioned that you might try the bobsleigh. Did that ever work out? For yes, you? I did a bobsleigh for the Navy. Um, that was before I got my citizenship and um, I think I won some medals now, but I can't remember what I won again because that was some time. Um, the only concern I had there was the training was in Bath. Yeah. And I had to travel all the way from Plymouth to Bath to do it constantly. So I think that was a big constraint for me. And at the same time, trying to do that kind of, the level I wanted to really do bobsleigh to um, compared to my walk was quite difficult. And the, the only option I had was I would have had to give up trying to get promoted just to do bobsleigh. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't really leave sports to join another career to be stagnant. I don't like being stagnant. Sure. So yeah. I was like, I had that choice and I didn't really like that choice. And I was like, you know what? I think I will have to let that choice go and focus on my career and try and climb up the scales. Yeah, I think that they, I mean, a Nigerian uh, counterpart, actually, Chris Akabusi. Yeah. He joined the British Army. And I think back in the 80s and early 90s, there was room yeah. in the manpower. We had yeah. more 
more manpower to say right you can focus purely on sports and we'll even promote you uh, you know up to a certain extent Uh, and you have a career in the army or navy and and we'll give a thumbs up to say waving the flag but there's there's less scope for that now yeah in the navy yeah the army still has it but not for the navy and uh, we do do have that manpower issues and that's a major issue to be honest yeah which is a shame but you know we've all got a job to do Uh, what about your family Are, are they do they recognise you as I recognise you as the fastest well, man on the continent? One point three billion people. My kids, my kids, <laughs> ask some questions. She doesn't understand it because the teachers keep telling them that. But what they don't know is most of the time they have my Olympic medal and one around it in the house and just <laughs> yeah. laugh. Or like I wish you guys knew what that means. But when you go older, you will know what that means. But uh, my kids are quite talented at the moment, and I know for a fact. My daughter, my senior daughter, she will run because she's. I'm even trying to find it hard. She's got so much acceleration. It's hard for me even trying to keep up with really? her. And she's just nine. <laughs> <laughs> so at the moment, but as I said, um, I'm not going to like, force them into others um, to do athletics. I'm going to try and open up their choices. If you want to yeah. do swimming, you're going to do tennis. It's up to you. But um, I will let them know that that option is available for them. I mean, enjoyment's got to be... Yeah, you got to love what you're you've doing. Gotta, especially if you don't at love, the start, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, is you got to love that sport. At the same time, seeing the benefits of it. Because I remember in um, 2000 and... When was that? 2004, after the Olympics... No, before the Olympics, um, I was going to turn pro at the beginning of the year. And as soon as I came out to run my first indoor, I was really scared. And my first indoor I ever ran, I ran the third fastest time in the world that year. And the shoe conscious were coming, and I think that just gave me that poof, that mind that wow, this is what the world out there. Yeah, and I think that just gave me the love for the sports. Yeah, well, Flash, we're coming to the end here. We've done nearly 50 minutes. Uh, <laughs> I could talk to you forever, but I know you've got to get home to Plymouth tonight, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come and chat. And uh, we'll have to get you down uh, either my local club or <laughs> out with uh, some of the runners here and give us some. Sprint drills, and we'll make it last no more than 40 meters. I promise. That was my pleasure. I enjoyed doing that a lot. Right. I would shake your hand, but we're still in these these times. But I've really appreciated your time, Flash. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much.